Hola mi gente, we're going to talk about food today, which is by far one of my favorite topics. Now the thing with food is that it is something that is really embedded in our culture, in terms of our rituals, right? How many of us ate 12 grapes at midnight, right? Or Good Friday, fish, right? Like even though I grew up in a different religion, evangelical, culturally, Catholic in my house uh, during Lent on Fridays. No one ate meat. Um, and again, there's so many things also related to memories with food. For me, I had a complicated relationship with food growing up. I developed an eating disorder and so did my sister. So a lot of that I can argue is with the environment, right? We weren't genetically hardwired. But food was also about control for us growing up like my mom would buy us new clothes and they'll be like two sizes too small and so she would say well if you really want to dress in these new clothes then you will do the work to make them fit so I had to live a lot of my life uh, unlearning those ideas right and then I only really got to enjoy food and become like the foodie that I am, that I take it so seriously, was after I had my son. I would say when I started my relationship with Pablo, because growing up, I never ate at a dinner table. And the first time I met Pablo's father, who cooked for me empanadas and um, machaca, which is a soup from Mendoza, where he's from, we sat at a dinner table and Interestingly enough, I ate four empanadas, which is kind of a taboo or faux pas, but they were so good. And I don't know, ever since that day, I would say a lot was opened up in terms of my appetite or feeling good around food because it was one of the best memories I have. And here we are nearly 20 years later. And I would say that I am a foodie. I love to eat, but I love also preparing food. My mother, when she raised us, one of the things that she made sure we did not learn was to cook, which in hindsight, I'm like, wow, you would have denied me then of this wonderful feeling that I get. I'm not saying this is for everyone, but I really do enjoy preparing meals for my son, for my husband, gathering around the table. My husband's family are very food-centric. I mean, the brothers own restaurants. I mean, Cristian Alvarez is by far my favorite chef ever, right? Shout out to Fiorito, the restaurant in Miami. That being said, talking about food, I think about also, you know, what it means to maintain certain food cultures and sometimes they don't translate i mean if you think about the way we eat in latin america and then people migrate and want to maintain the same type of lifestyle and food culture and then they come up with these health outcomes that were unintended completely preventable but they did not know that the food here may be so processed in the united states or you know if you taste a tomato here in the united states and go taste one anywhere in latin america you know the difference so it's interesting that our palate literally changes when we're uh, in the United States when you migrate, but also we are influenced by our environment. And so I wanted to share my story of the pina colada. 
Now, I was in France as of recently. I was there as it was burning down, right? But uh, one of the things that we did, which you have to when you travel, is eat out, right? I didn't want to get an Airbnb, actually, for that very reason. Because I know myself, I'll start cooking and I'm like, this is, you know, what we'll do. Because you get sick of eating out. Or just like, again, it's a gamble, um, but we wanted to kind of eat our way through Paris. But one thing that I, I don't know why I craved so much, and I'm not a big drinker, and I'll start this story also by highlighting that I'm very much aware that it is Alcohol Awareness Month. But something that I really liked about Paris was that they had a lot of non-alcoholic drink options, which I think it's great. You know, usually for me, it's a Diet Coke. I'm not a big drinker anymore, but the pina colada for me also has a lot of history. Um, we didn't go out much as a family growing up, but when we did, my mother's a creature of habit, and we only went to a Colombian restaurant. And that restaurant, we were allowed to have one, like, you know, drink. It was a big deal to order off the menu. My mom was big on, like, okay, me and my sister would share a plate, right? And so it wasn't like I was able to exercise my own, you know, flavor profile, right? Like it was always, you know, someone choosing for me. But we were allowed to have our own drinks, which for the most part was licuados, which are smoothies. Or for me, I'm a big uh, passion fruit, maracuya or parcha, the same fruit said differently throughout the region. Uh, and so I would get like a, a, a smoothie of passion fruit, Another fruit that I really love that I grew up having that I can't find here without going to a specialty shop is tomate de arbol, which is uh, one of my favorite fruits. And again, making juices from this, but the pina colada, that was the one we were allowed to have. But of course, it was also embarrassing. They're like, but make sure it's virgin, which in hindsight, why do they call non-alcoholic drinks virgin drinks? I don't even want to get into the whole, you know, machismo attached to these concepts. But again, it would be like, okay, every now and then my mom also on Thanksgiving would make pina coladas. And because we had one cousin who drank, you know, she would get like this one Bacardi and like it was a really light drink and everyone would act like they were so drunk from having this one super watered down pina colada but i know what was it when i was in france and later in life i've developed a love for coconut which wasn't my favorite profile but i didn't know a lot of actually the flavor profiles that i liked because i liked them um, the other day I got in a tiff with my mother because I was like, you don't even know what, what what's my favorite ice cream flavor because you only bought the ones that you like. And I know it seems like kind of like a childlike grudge, but it was very indicative of just the relationship we had. And she looked at me and she goes, you're right. I just thought you like what I like. And I was like, yeah, that kind of colored the entire relationship, mother. But back to the pina colada and my undying love for it in Paris. I don't know why. This is like a big drink. If you like and I was like, well, I know that the coconut is not indigenous to France, right? Um, so that was interesting. So I was like, well, do they use real coconuts? Like if you get a good pina colada, you get real pineapples and real coconuts blended in. 
But again, I, I was like, that's strange. But it was like every restaurant. In fact, we went to go see Damien Rice at Le Grand Rex, which is like where they have their whole Oscars, the equivalent to that in France. Really beautiful venue. And they had pina colada. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is the drink. And no, it's not. It does not taste like pina colada. None. And I tell you, I, I had at least a dozen looking for a good pina colada. And then it just became kind of a joke for me. Like, I want to find the best pina colada in Paris. Well, no. I, and, and I would like bring this up too, because, you know, the Parisians are very proud of their cuisine and they should be. But, you know, I'm not a wine drinker, but I could tell you, this is not a good pina colada. And I thought about the legend of the pina colada. If anyone knows, it, legend has it, it dates back to the 1800s. The tale states that the Puerto Rican pirate Roberto Confresi, better known in the Caribbean folklore as El Pirata Confresi, supposedly served the form of cocktail, which was the pina colada, in which he mixed the white rum, coconut milk, and pineapple juice. And they thought that the recipe died with him, but he actually prepared this, as the legend goes, to prevent a mutiny. And I think that's interesting because a pina colada for me in my older years, I associate with a good time. And I don't know if it's now that, you know, growing up in the 80s when we used to think of opulence or, you know, really fancy people a la Godfather, they were drinking pina coladas. And it's so interesting to me because I felt really proud of the fact that they did not have a good pina colada because I knew, right, what one tastes like. And I knew that they couldn't replicate it without having these very important ingredients that will never taste the same. This was my mentality. But I also then thought about what does a pineapple mean, right, in the context of France. And I'm not sure if you know this, but there is a lot of history with pineapples. It was a symbol of colonialism. And not only that, the pineapple was indigenous to South America and domesticated and harvested there for centuries. It actually came late to Europe. The fruit followed in its cultivation behind the tomato, corn, potato, and other New World imports. Delicious but challenging and expensive to nurture in chilly climates, it was irresistible for artists and travelers to want to actually have a pineapple. The pineapple came to represent in that way many things. For Europeans, it was first a symbol of exoticism, power and wealth, but it was also an emblem of colonialism, which waited with connections to plantation savory. So it's interesting to me that, you know, they're glorifying this drink that will never taste as the way it should in that context, right? And I'm not saying that you can't find a good pina colada. I'm just saying I didn't find one, but I also think it has to do with the fact that I have a palate that's been developed by what I've been also exposed to. And I have a very deep relationship with fruits and vegetables. My parents used to actually go to Bronx Terminal Market in the Bronx and buy and put on a food truck fresh fruits and vegetables that they would bring into the Lower East Side and sell from a truck in the time of the 1980s, where, you know, people bought most uh, grocery shopping happened in bodegas, right? And we had a lot of food deserts in the Lower East Side. So it was really hard to get these fresh fruits and vegetables. But 
I lived in a predominantly Caribbean, you know, neighborhood, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans. I know men in their 80s who go downstairs to find the right avocado to accompany their meal. Like that is, you know, how we are very much in connection with fruits and vegetables as part of our cuisine. And I could imagine the disruption of not having access to it when you migrate. And my dad, he's an entrepreneur and a hustler, and he saw an opportunity. And I know one time I was on one of those weird Facebook groups of, you know, the old neighborhood and a picture of the truck came up. It's a red truck. If anyone, you know, has ever seen these food trucks, but it was before they got blinged out and nice. I mean, it was just a very, you know, simple red truck that my dad would open and I would make and design actually their cardboard signs, right? Um, I guess that was my first real art. And my dad always thought it was funny because people would be like, that's really interesting art. My dad, he's blind. So he just saw, you know, shapes and sizes. And he's just like, as long as it says, I'll give you a deal and I'll have those numbers correct. And people would come, man. People from all over the community. And the Lower East Side is also a very Jewish enclave. So I grew up eating knishes and matzo ball soup when I feel sick. I also had a matzo ball soup in France, not as good as the one in Odessa's in the Lower East Side. But still, it's just, these were the things I grew up with, which made me really think about how my palate also and my appetite has been influenced by these experiences. And if we think about the role of food and memory, well, it has to do also with our senses, right? And I think it's important to think about also, like, why is it that we find comfort, right, in certain foods? Or why is it that it could boost memory, actual foods? I mean, our relationship with food has to be healthy, but it also has to be one where we could find also pleasure in it, right? And I always think it's interesting, the relationship between our appetites for things like sex and food, both which are you know, highly policed for women in particular, disproportionately. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in the same way to men. I know that obviously, you know, fat shaming and, and body shaming is something that is pervasive and, and it's not exclusive to one gender. But disproportionately, I would say that it's hard to divorce uh, things like eating disorders or all the ways in which women are socialized to chip away at their self-esteem with, you know, ideas of fitting in. Um, you see it in the fashion industry, you see it in food cultures. But see, the thing is, I wanted to enjoy food because I also have learned that it is something that we need to become stronger to become healthier. And that's something that I truly struggle with, with my immune system. And I do believe that a lot of the healing or my health is attached to food, which then makes me think about why is it in the United States we don't teach doctors about nutrition or preventative medicine. But that is another podcast. What I want to go back to is the wonderful topic of food. Because even when I was in my brokest state as a struggling graduate student, food was always something that I wanted to take seriously. And it's not about the actual food. It was for me about being around a table with Pablo and Pablito 
and like knowing that was the fruit of my labor. And so going back to Paris, right? In Paris, I because I ate so much, I didn't realize how the influence happens, right? And when I came back, I'm like, no garlic powder, no onion powder. Like, let's just go with the simple ingredients. And sometimes it takes all day to, to make a meal. But that's the beauty of it, especially if I work from home. I was like, I should be eating well, right? Like, I should be able to make these foods because I have that luxury, right? To be able to cook, right? At home, because I realized that a lot of people cannot also, right? If I'm working outside of the home, the last thing I would want to do is then go and cook this big meal, which I think in Latin America also, that is part of like the things that you do and you build into your day, at least for a lot of individuals, right? Like I have an uncle in Argentina who started really early i tell you we had just gotten up had mate and he was out to the store to buy what he needed to make that lunch and i was like wow this is a lot but it was this beautiful stock that he made and so i think what i got him from paris that really kind of influenced was just a love of ingredients right and then you think about all the ways in which like our geography in latin america and our climate um, you know, the mountains, the rainforests have all impacted food. And then think about the cultures that have dominated and that we still are able to see their influence on our food. So three native cultures that have dominated are the Aztecs in Mexico, Mayas, Central America, and the Incas in South America. All three cultivated corn, beans, chile, squash, potatoes, tomatoes, avocados, and a starchy root vegetable, cassava, which we know as yuca, right? And I love yuca fries. I love yuca. Um, you know, I, I replace it, obviously, in many of my meals uh, for potato. My husband, and I think my son goes both. He likes yucas, but he likes potatoes a lot. But it's something that also, he didn't eat a lot um, growing up, Pablo. It was more potatoes. <clears throat> but for me, oh, like an alcapurria made with yuca. Alcapurrias being like these fried, you know, bundles of joy that you get in Puerto Rican uh, households. And my mother, by the way, didn't cook that. My mother cooked very Colombian growing up. And she maintained the Colombian food kind of hours <laughs> like my mom's last meal is like at four and then like she'll snack at night which it really is not good if you still are hungry at seven my mom's like you can have a bowl of cereal in my house we eat late which we maintain a bit more of an argentine food culture timing which is like we eat our dinner like at nine you know, sometimes eight. I'm trying to push it earlier, but we're just so used to eating at that time. Um, and also our, our food has been taking as of late hours to make in the best possible way, right? Like I am like, I will buy the ingredients. I will cut up the vegetable. And to me, I mean, there's this great ethnography, which was about God's love we deliver. They're an organization that brings food to people who have AIDS and are homebound. Um, and so in the ethnography, they talk about how the labor of love is in the chopping, right, of these vegetables. It's the actual act, like the physicality. And that is something that I'm learning to really appreciate in the context of food. And now I understand, like, oh, I slaved all day over this meal. I get what they're trying to get at. 
pork is an interesting ingredient in I think the general Latino population also like in my family my mother's family it's interfaith so like I have cousins who won't eat pork or shellfish right and so it's kind of hard also if like you know pernil on the other side of the family which is like pork right it's like the main dish it's what you eat in the holiday but Pork became the most important meat in Latin America, except in Argentina, where the asado, right, beef is king, and in northern Mexico, because the Spanish had introduced in those areas cattle. Europeans actually brought coffee, which grows across Latin America, and yes, I am biased. Best coffee for me comes from Colombia. And the second is the French roast, which I'm kind of like embarrassed to say, at least for me, those are the ones. And I love Sumatra, which has a floral scent, but... Who is this person? I just love a good coffee. Chiles are native to Latin America and are central to Latin American cuisine. These are the basis also for a lot of our sauces. So salsa, uh, moles, um, some salsas are chunky with tomatoes and onions and garlic and spices. But then you have adobo, which is a spicy vinegar salsa used as a rub or serving sauce for meats. And like adobo chicken is a big meal in um the Philippines, right? And that's because of the Spanish colonialists. Um, escabeche, which is originally a Spanish pickling sauce, is a marinade for cooked fish, uh, chicken, and vegetables. When I think of escabeche, I think of escabeche bacalao, which is a big thing in the Caribbean. Some of the Latin American dishes feature corn, rice, and beans. And I always say, man, my mom would serve you like a pound of rice and less meat-centric, and I thought about it because of the way my mother was raised, right? The men always got more of the protein, and she was just, it was not meat-heavy. But I know she likes it because every time we go out, she'll have a steak. And I'm like, well, why you don't make these at home? And she's like, well, no, that's like a special occasion meal. And I'm like, well, Nelsie, we eat steak almost every day in this house. And I'm not saying like, oh, you know, I have that type of money. No, 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 no. I just budget for myself the things that I used to budget, like going out like going out to like, you know, uh, restaurants and stuff like that, which, you know, at, at 40 plus, you know, you should have a little time to kind of do things to kind of play hard, right? If you're working hard, if you have that luxury, to do that because I'm saying like you know I get my privilege in being able to do that but let us not forget in one generation it was completely the opposite so I find me being able to go out to eat and enjoy it as like an act of like wow that's what we fought hard to do right like that was the goal but I tell you now that I can go out I just love to stay in and so like whereas before you know, I'm like, okay, this is to go out. I'm like, no, this is to make the best meal at home. And, you know, I've invested in some of those slow cookers, air fryers. And honestly, for me, it's been actually cost effective, which I think is the biggest lie. We think that if we're like, you know, cooking, that our time, right, is not being valued in the same way. So we'll cook, you know, fast things. And I get that. But I think that that's what capitalism maybe takes away from us or this type of, you know, aggressive, conspicuous, like, you know, push to be better workers. 
we don't get siestas, right? We don't get time to go home and have a meal with our family. That's what one of the best things of the pandemics, right? How many people got to see their families out of force and precariousness? And that created a whole host of other things. But I tell you, being able to actually have a meal with your loved ones, that's a gift, right? And that's a gift that I will fight for every day because I know I've lived enough to know that that's how I refuel, right? And I love also second round meals. That's what we call them. It's like the leftovers are chopped with onions, garlics, and you put them in an empanada. You know, empanadas being those turnover filled with meat, vegetables, fruit. I've stuffed it all in empanada. And we have empanadas or versions of it throughout the world, right? Like pierogies in Eastern Europe or blintzes or dumplings, right? We have that. Seafood, I think, is an interesting uh, meal. Growing up, my favorite dish, and my mom made it for every birthday, is coconut rice, uh, mojarra fish, fried um, sweet plantains, and ensalada remolacha, which is uh, beet and carrot salad. Really a big thing on the coast, part of my childhood. And that was it. Like, that was what I loved to eat growing up. It was my special occasion meal. When I moved to Spain, I couldn't take the fish, even though I did wrap, like, a, a, a little piece of fish and foil or whatever. So when I got there, and I thought it was kind of interesting, the fact that I, I just ate a little bit each day of the rice, right? Like, it, it was like the the less rice I had left, the longer I was already there. And it was like my transition into this. And interestingly enough, in addition to taking a little bit of the coconut rice that I took with me to Spain, I also took cheese whiz, which I remember now. And I think it's funny because I know it's bad for you, but there's nothing that tastes as good to me as that yellow government cheese that I got in the 80s. And it was funny because I'm writing about that because when I got back from Paris, my mother had been in my house. She was the one who was taking care of my dogs. And of course, she cleaned everything, rearranged everything. Obviously, I told her not to, but she's a mom. And I get it because guess what? I would do the same thing. And I told my son, I'm like, just so you know, the story will repeat itself as much as I try to fight it. Like I go into his room and I start doing it just like almost like a second I don't give it a second thought, actually. But um, all that to say, like for me, traveling, those were the two things I took, the coconut rice and the cheese whiz. The cheese whiz is probably even speaking to that identity of mine growing up in the Lower East Side, the projects, the 80s. And it's just so comforting. So when I got back from Paris, after eating all these Parisian cheeses, my mom had left a little block because my next door neighbor still gets them. And they don't give them in like those massive blocks that I used to get in the 80s. And in the 80s, you have family members who stand on the line, the cheese line. And, and, and sometimes we would have three blocks of cheese, right? And my mother used to take that cheese as a delicacy to Colombia where we would be there. And I have this memory of my sister you know, as complicated as our relationship is, my sister is objectively funny. And it was the first moment where I saw my sister growing up for who she was. We're five years apart. And she had gotten into the kitchen and seen my cousin sneak eat 
some of that yellow cheese and she was so pissed off she was like how could she you know she's such a sneak and I knew it and it was just like my sister was pissed not because she took the cheese we had an abundance of it but it was the act so I'm also thinking about like there's drama also sometimes attached to food and in that case I always remember my sister so when I got back here and I had this you know yellow cheese block it felt like home to me and I immediately did my favorite dish which this is I guess appealing a layer of who I am one of the dishes me my sister and my cousin used to make because even though I don't talk about her I grew up in a room with my sister and my cousin my cousin's 10 years older than me my sister's five I am the youngest and we used to make sambumbia Sambumbia is something, it's, I guess it's an African word, Colombian. It, it, it just means like a hodgepodge, a mixture. And our Sambumbia consisted of putting that yellow cheese, which was impossible to melt until microwaves, right? Because microwave radiation was the only thing that melted that cheese. And so we put it in a glass. We put a little bit of milk and we crushed saltine crackers and you mix it and Honestly, it looks a little bit like throw up, but it was like, you know, our gourmet hood food, right? I was going to say, like, I'm thinking of the um, Beverly Hillbillies, um, the show, but it was one of those moments, me coming back into my apartment, making some booby. I'm being like, after coming back from Paris and having eaten half the city, being like, wow, that's at home. And you know what else I did? Then I ordered Peruvian food. Because Peruvian food is my favorite cuisine. And something that I lacked in France was acid. I'm like, can't they just put lemon on something? I wanted ceviche. Now, ceviche is important in the cuisine of coastal areas. From Gulf of Mexico to Chile to Cape Horn. It's an appetizer, a raw fish marinated in citrus juice. And you can get it with octopus, uh, mixed seafood until firm and opaque, served with chiles, tomatoes, and onions. And it's honestly a way to preserve food too, right? The best ceviche I had actually was in Peru, but not in a cevicheria. It wasn't like in one of those fancy restaurants, which I actually had been backpacking and gotten stranded because there was a strike in this town. It was like, I don't even know the name. I couldn't tell you. It was just in the middle of nowhere, but they were selling ceviche by the bus terminal and I took a gamble I took a gamble and it was the best of each I ever had now these women were not in and they were only women in this restaurant were thinking of catering to a audience beyond their community but I'm like this was one of those moments where you're like oh everyone here who's eating here is of the culture and community must be good and that's always a good way to read if the restaurant is going to be good right like if the people of the community of the culture who eat this and make this are eating there then it chances are it's good right and sometimes also i love seafood stews i remember being in spain and finding a restaurant that was colombia and they made this seafood dish that it was again special occasion uh type meal and i remember having it and being like man i'm homesick so again thinking of this food and memory connection the soup features uh meat as the main ingredient and usually sometimes we also include peanuts and squash 
toasted cassava meal, which I love when you go to a Brazilian restaurant. They have like that dry cassava that you put on top. It's delicious. Cornmeal, ground nuts and potatoes are used to chicken soups also a lot throughout the region because this is what's available. And so if you think of Mexican food, Mexican food is also something that is global, right? It's international, but you know, I didn't understand this until I learned the difference between Tex-Mex food and Mexican food, right? But all of it has this Aztec influence. Corn, wheat, beans, rice, coffee, vegetables, fruit, and cattle are all grown in Mexico. And the Aztecs actually consider corn sacred, so still central to Mexican cooking. And there are about 60 varieties of corn that are grown in the region. But mainly corn is dry, cooked, soaked in lime water, and then ground into dough called masa. When I went to San Diego for the first time, I remember seeing like these women, indigenous native women were making the tortillas and you could go and just buy it from them like a dozen. Honestly, that was like a reason I'm like, I think I want to move to San Diego. Dry ground masa is sold as masarina, a coarse grain corn flour used to make tortillas, a flatbread that is part of many Mexican meals. Avocados and squash are two other native foods that are important in Mexican cooking. Chocolate came to Mexico from trade with the Maya in Central America. So like you taste moles, right, which have a chocolate base. Um, Aztecs use it in hot, frothy beverages that enrich with corn milk and seasoned with chiles, vanilla, and other spices. You know, the flavor Mexican chocolate, right? One of my favorite ice cream flavors. And actually, we used to drink Mexican chocolate as a kid for New Year's with our 12 grapes, which in hindsight, not too complimentary, but these were rituals. And the thing with food culture and rituals, it's like hard to break and adapt from them because then they feel less authentic. But what's great sometimes is when you create new ones, right? And so thinking about frijoles, also beans is part of our food culture. They're versatile um, and they're very hearty also. And I think that that's also something that we think about with food and sustenance, especially, I mean, if we think back historically and the type of work, I mean, before industrialization, people worked in the land, from the land, lived off the land. Actually, even after industrialization, I mean, my family are in Colombia are predominantly all working in food, right? Growing it, slaughtering animals for it. And so uh, it's interesting that both of my uncles uh, that, you know, are not necessarily meant to be revered or remembered in a fond light, they used to kill pigs and, and cows. And I think that's why I became a vegetarian so consciously for many years. And I couldn't necessarily, like, think about the consumption of meat without thinking about its relationship to violence in my particular case, right? I think it's interesting in the documentary Todo Sobre Asado, how they tease out this relationship in social ways, right? In which also we associate beef and meat eating with like, you know, a particular type of mas masculinity. 
with um now that I've introduced me again into my diet and honestly I needed to it was a medical necessity because I was not getting the nutrients I needed even taking all these vitamins right and so I immediately saw like an improvement in terms of my energy levels but I'm like but I don't feel good when I eat meat so I'm always experimenting like I'll eat a 80 20 which is like 80 vegetables 20 percent meat and I play with this because, again, part of my identity has been wrapped up in not consuming animal meats, but I couldn't do anything else, right, in terms of trying to supplement the food, right? Even though now I'm going to a, a different um, nutrition plan, it, it was interesting to me because I'm like, this food makes sense in the context of the region in terms of, like, you know, also the type of labor that is involved, Right. And I think about my relationship with food. I mean, my grandfather worked in sugar cane cutting, right? Like that was part of his, his you know, heritage in Puerto Rico. Um, I worked in the service industry. Like I waited tables, like I served food. And I also think that that gives you another layer to appreciating the value also the experience and the hands that, that make our foods. And I think when we were in the pandemic and we realized so many of our essential workers were also the ones that were in the kitchens that were delivering our food and they came from our region, right? Most of them, you, you see it. I mean, I think in New York City, it was something like over 70% are undocumented Latinos, right? And so that created even more vulnerability and risk around COVID. But, you know, every time they would deliver food because when I got COVID for the first time, honestly, that was my lifeline, right? I would order from the same place in my neighborhood and I would leave a note like, thank you, because I didn't know I had COVID. It was really early on and I just couldn't understand why I couldn't even make myself a sandwich, right? And they would send always a little bit more, right? Like they were like, they knew that they were feeding my family during this time. And I know people are like, well, you just purchased it. No, but there's also emotions attached to it in the exchange, right? Like they were providing a service. They were helping me because I could not do these things, right? I couldn't shop. I couldn't eat. I couldn't cook. And, you know, so when I banged my pots and pans, it was for the nurses, it was for the doctors and so many other unsung heroes who kept us, you know, afloat. Brazilian food culture is interesting because it has also a lot of Portuguese and African influence on the cuisine. Um, and dende oil, a bright orange palm oil is the fat choice for many recipes, which again, remember Portuguese once ruled Brazil and bringing slaves from Africa to work on local sugar plantations. And then also you have a big diaspora, like, and you have a big Japanese diaspora in places like Sao Paulo, right? And, and you have all these different cuisines that mesh and make you know, amazing food. I think a chaufa in Peru, which is a Chinese Peruvian fusion of food. And it's like, you know, I love chaufa rice, which is, you know, basically fried rice, but it has some of those ingredients that are indigenous to the culture. And I think that's amazing. And that's, you know, what happened, right? Like different mixing of people and different ways in which create and make food and also influence or develop our palates and appetites around that. One of my favorite dishes is feijoada, 
my sister-in-law Renata, she's Brazilian. She makes it to Afro Brazilian Brazilian specialty, and it's black beans and meat simmered in a well-seasoned stock with pork. It is delicious, right? But it's one of those meals that you look back and you're like, man, this is a labor of love. Like also, we have so many sancochos, our labor of love, which is a big like chicken stew, and it exists in all of our cultures in some way, despite the diversity in the region. We share these dishes, made a little bit different, but basically all around, you know, resourcefulness. And also, they have to be hearty. One of my favorite meals is choclo. No, locro, locro. It's a chunky winter vegetable soup along with dry corn, like hominy. Oh, it is delicious, but that's a labor of love. And in Argentina, like you could buy it in certain times of the year and like, you know, buy it from grandmas as it is supposed to be made. I mean, it is just amazing, um, but it's hard to find here. So I made this like quick uh, locro version with bacon and like, you know, canned stews. Doesn't taste the same. Gets us close though, right? And so thinking about food, uh, for us, um, we've had to negotiate a lot because the way I grew up eating is very different from the way Pablo grew up eating. And then we have this kid who has a particular appetite. He's always been more about eating. You know, he loves steak. I mean, him, his cousins, they all go out. They order the same thing, which I think it's fascinating. But it, it's part of the food culture. And he tells me that, right? And he knows that, you know, perhaps my palate was developed a little bit more on the Andean side, Right. Um, a lot of seafood. The meats that we eat, by and large, are chicken more, right? Beef is more like a... a it's interesting because beef will be cheaper. And same thing for Argentina. And chicken would be more expensive. But honestly, I don't really eat meat-forward dishes. So, like, I'm more of an arepa person. An arepa is a small griddle corn cake. Love it. You can make that any time of the day and I will have one. I like ajiacos, which are soups of chicken, potato, and corn, which is very Colombian. Articuchos, I think, is one of my favorite delicacies that really challenged me. But every time I share it and I tell them, my husband and my son, who don't like any type of innards, I'm like, you would love it. It's cubes of beef in ají marinade. So it's like spicy, skewered and grilled and served with um, potatoes corn on the cob but it's really chicken heart and beef heart like cow heart and the first time I saw this actually was in Brazil because we went to one of those barbecues where they have the the meats they bring them out and they brought out these skewers with tiny hearts and I almost passed out right I was a vegetarian that was not my thing then I went backpacking through Peru and I knew that at the time, especially now you have vegan options, vegetarian, that was not a thing. When I went backpacking over 20 years ago, it was hard to find. So I knew I was going to be selective about my food. And I tried articuchos and they have articucherias, which are these restaurants and that's all they serve. And it is delicious. It just is. I wouldn't have it now though, but I remember like loving it. And I've tried to order it in other places, never taste the same. So I tell my son, I have to go with you to Peru for you to fully understand what I mean. 
And it's kind of like one of those things, if you've ever had a Coca-Cola, or now they sell Mexican Coca-Cola, which means we don't use corn syrup, we use cane sugar, and it just tastes different until we put a name to it. I'm just like, Coca-Cola tastes different in the U.S. I couldn't put my finger on it. And so like when I would go to Latin America, when I was in Colombia as a kid, love Coca-Cola. And then here it was like not tasting the same. And I didn't understand, honestly, it's the ingredients, right? And so I think, you know, even around sweets, uh, hundreds of tropical islands throughout the Caribbean. So like food culture in the Caribbean, I think is fascinating. You know, you have the earliest known inhabitants were the Caribs and the Arawaks and their influence is still very much in the food. Seafood is a staple. Chicken is often served in main dishes and our pork and goat for some islands are part of it. But I love the tropical fruits in Caribbean cooking. Mangoes, figs, pomegranates, and coconuts are eaten raw, cooked in side dishes, and used to flavor meats. So even though I'm from Colombia, I grew up on the Caribbean coast. Like I, 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 I'm from a coastal town. We put coconut in our food, right? Like I love that. But you also see the influence of African culture. Like in places like Jamaica, fish, vegetable, and beans are mainstays of the diet. Um, Jamaica is known for its jerk recipes, blend of chiles, onions, garlic, spice, and other herbs and spices used to season meat, poultry, and fish. And the marinades are used by adding oil, citrus, juice, and molasses to the jerk spice blend. And I mean, honestly, it, it is fascinating. And then you see the French influence on Haitian food. See, I'm like, that's when I like the most those type of cuisines. Like, I love Haitian food. I love Vietnamese food both influenced by French colonialism, but I don't know. I think it's the combination. I guess one could say the same thing happens throughout our entire region in Latin America and the Caribbean, the Americas in terms of the Spanish right influence with our native and African food. That's why our food is bomb. <laughs> but in Haiti, rice and beans are the native dish. Chicken is very common. Flattened plantain slices cooked in oil like potato chips which who doesn't love platanito chips, right? And you see Cuban cuisine, strong Spanish and African influences. When I lived in Miami, it's so interesting because I'm like, I eat Cuban sandwiches and I love them because they taste better down there. You see where I'm going with this. Many dishes start with also sofrito, which is something like I cook with. I understand the value of making your own too. My mother the other day came from the Lower East Side and left me sofrito which she freezes in the concierge in my building and grated garlic and I was like mom if I had not gone and that like melts right could you imagine how it would have smelled she's like delicious and I'm like you're right <laughs> but again when we think about food food is really about memories for us too that's like how we hold on to a sense of place but I think also, if we think about it from a neuroscience point of view, I just want to point out that this isn't anecdotal, right? There are real also scientific reasons. Food is essential for many reasons. But honestly, in recent years, there have been growing interest in finding how our brain processes food cues and direct our food choices. So food is essential because it provides the energy that keeps us alive. And some of us, right, need that energy in different ways because maybe if you are socialized to see yourself at risk or you're 
life is always something that is not guaranteed, doesn't that also shape how you experience food? Although such substantial knowledge has been acquired today about the mechanisms underlying food perception and choice in humans, food cognitive neuroscience is a field that still is infancy, but I find it fascinating because at the end of the day, disorders and eating behaviors have been widespread at the population level, especially in developed industrialized countries where food availability is overwhelming. But we're seeing this phenomenon also happen in places where you have economic crisis, where food availability is not something that is guaranteed. And yet we still see these health farming practices related to food. The statistics on eating disorders are such that they now constitute a growing preoccupation for public health systems. And this is where my early research started. It started looking at the beauty industry. It started also looking at the ways in which women were socialized to aspire to be thin and not enjoy food. So maybe that's my feminist act. That is my resistance. I will enjoy it, right? But I will also make better choices in regards to how it fuels me or what types of food harm me. Researchers contribute towards alleviating these concerns by providing findings that can hopefully be translated into treatments. Now, the thing is, when you think about food in the context of a modern world, previous evidence showed that Psychomatic primates are very efficient in judging ripeness of fruits or edibility of leaves. This means that their visual system allows these animals to see the environment in colors and more importantly to distinguish red and green nuances in fruit and leaves that are generally associated with higher energy and protein content. I think that maybe that is something that evolutionary development favored me, right? Like I grew up around fruits and vegetables. And so I am one of those weird people that goes and smells of fruit at the Whole Foods or wherever I'm shopping and look weird. But I, I still engage with it like I would back in my neighborhood where I grew up, right? Or I, like I was in Bronx Terminal Market testing the fruit, right? To make sure that it was fresh, that it was delicious, that it was the best. And that's what my parents kind of taught me about food, right? Like it's weird that my sister does not eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. That was not her thing. But my love for them, it's really also related to like my childhood. The good memories, the best memories I have are related to these moments where food played the role. And so when I eat and consume those type of dishes, those ingredients, or create these rituals around them, it gives me a strong sense of direction. Because again, sometimes we have to look back to move forward. And sometimes you just need a good pina colada. Si t'aimes les pina coladas Et marcher sous la pluie Si tu ne fais pas du yoga Et si tu aimes la vie Si t'aimes faire l'amour par le sable Sous le coup de minuit Et si tu te sens capable 